All right, we're on the last of our series on how we try to tell God lies and try to tell him uh, our version of the story and deceive him. And it never really works because God always knows and we're just really trying to deceive ourselves and hope that he would go along with that. And so we've looked at several different people. We've looked at the, the life of Samson. We've looked at the... Um, at the life of King David, Solomon, some others, and how that worked. And now we're going to look at the life of the patriarch, Abraham, and how he tried to use deception in his life, and it didn't really work. And the lie that we're dealing with today is the lie that we tell ourselves and we tell the Lord that it's really necessary that we fit in. And I've got to tell you a story. You, you prayed, Jared prayed for us going to Africa I can't believe I said this, but Jared loves to tell this story, and so I'll tell it on myself. But in 2012, when we took the first team over to Mozambique, and we arrived at the border crossing into Mozambique, the land crossing, that is a really treacherous place. There's all kinds, I mean, there's hundreds, if not thousands of people around the border there um, where you're trying to get across, and they're all trying to rip you off. They're, they're, they're con men. And uh, they'll tell you, we'll get you across the border. Give us your, you know, give us your documents, your passports and your vehicle documents. We'll go in and, and uh, then they go, oh, we've had a problem. Pay us this much and we'll go. And, and there's a lot of palm greasing that goes on. And we knew this. So we got there and I said, you know, you guys, here's what I want you to do. I really want the team to hang close to me. Keep your stuff away, you know, where people don't see it and take it from you. And we're going to leave somebody by the car. And so I asked Jared. I mean, he's a big guy and he's intimidating. He scares a lot of us. And um, <laughs> not really. But I said, hey, Jared, stay with the cars and, and just hang out here so no one steals the stuff out of our cars or messes with them while we go in and take care of this document, these documents. Now, this is at night. We didn't plan it this way, but we arrived there after dark. And Jared's standing there. And the last thing I said to Jared before I took the whole team and went inside the buildings, I turned to Jared and I said, Hey, Jared, just try not to stand out. <laughs> it's dark. And the 300 guys around him are not white. And, and it, it, God bless him. He didn't say anything. He didn't go, you idiot. And I walked away thinking I had just given him the wisest of, of uh, advice there. And he reminded me of that later. And I go, yeah, well, you did a great job um, not standing out. But, you know, we have this temptation to just kind of fit in with the flow of a crowd if we you know then we we don't stand out you know the squeaky wheel gets the oil but a you know a nail that stands out gets hit with a hammer and so here's the thought that i want to bring to you is that's, that's going to carry us through this message today god asks us to take the risk of trusting him but we try to find ways to do things in life that seem safer to us Trusting God is a risky endeavor and we'd rather not take the risk. We want, a, we want a sure thing. We want assurances that we don't have to walk by faith and not by sight. And we lie to God when we say that we really need to do the primary work of protecting ourselves. In fact, I would suggest to you that self-protection and self-righteousness render the church impotent. 
You can think about that for a while. I've thought about it all week. I recently heard from a fellow pastor who was sharing with me their travail as they were walking through uh, the, with their leadership team, their board, uh, what they are going to be doing as a church in the next chapter. And they were talking about their mission and their values, some terminology we've used around here for a few years. And, and they said, that, you know, they asked, what's the mission of our local church? And one of the lay leaders spoke up and said, our primary focus is survival. We've got to keep the doors of this church open. And when they reported that to me, I said, they're wrong. Because keeping the doors open has become their idol. Your primary focus is the cause of Jesus Christ. And if he calls you to sacrifice that building and this fellowship in order for the kingdom to flourish, he will do it in great ways. Don't let self-protection Stand in the way of what God really wants to do at that church. Now it's easy for me to say because I'm not there dealing with the stuff that's causing them to think that maybe we won't make it. But we really do lie to God when we say we need to protect ourselves, God, because we're not sure you'll do it. And so I want to go to this story in Genesis. It's a troubling story to me because there are things going on here I don't understand. And there are things that Abram does and there are things that God does. And I just go, wait, what a minute. This doesn't look right. And it makes me really uncomfortable. And as I read this, some of you will get uncomfortable. Abraham moved south to the Negev, which is a desert. And he lived for a while between Kadesh and Shur. Then he moved on to Gerar. While living there as a foreigner, Abram introduced his wife, Sarah, by saying, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to his palace. But that night, God came to Abimelech in a dream and told him, you are a dead man. And I don't think I can pronounce that effectively enough. You're a dead man. For that woman you've taken is already married. But Abimelech had not slept with her yet. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Didn't Abraham tell me she's my sister? And she herself said, yes, he's my brother. I acted in complete innocence. My hands are clean. In the dream, God responded, yes, I know you are innocent. All right, there's already something there I don't understand. I know you're innocent. That's why I kept you from sinning against me and why I didn't let you touch her. Now return the woman to her husband and he will pray for you for he is a prophet. Then you will live. But if you don't return her to him, you can be sure that you and all your people will die. Abimelech got up early the next morning and quickly called all of his servants together When he told them what had happened, his men were terrified. Then Abimelech called for Abram. What have you done to us? He demanded. What crime have I committed that deserves treatment like this, making me and my kingdom guilty of this great sin? No one should ever do what you have done. Whatever possessed you to do such a thing? Abraham replied, I thought, this is a godless place. 
They will want my wife and will kill me to get her. And she really is my sister, for we both have the same father but different mothers, and I married her. Another little issue of, uh, I don't get this. When God called me to leave my father's home and travel from place to place, I told her, do me a favor wherever we go. Tell the people that I'm your brother. So here's Abram and Sarah, and they have become nomads. They've been called out of Ur, and they're following God, and they're going around. Now, by the way, this is the second instance this happens. It happens first in in Genesis chapter 12, where they're down in Egypt, and he tells Pharaoh, that's my sister. Now, I've got to tell you, there's got to be several things going on. We know that Sarah must have had uncommon beauty and caught people's eyes. We also know that it was very common for people of this time and in this region to use marriage as a way of forging alliances, making political alliances. And I marry off one of my family to one of your family and then we won't fight each other because now we're family. So we know that's happening. But in the midst of this, Abraham is petrified. He is scared to death because my wife is gorgeous and I am nothing. I have no power. I have no army. I'm just a wandering guy. And and people are going to see this and go, she is gorgeous. And he married up. And he is an easy mark. So let's just take him out and then we have her. And so he manufactures this plan, this scheme where we're going to go around and we're going to deceive people into thinking that we're just brother and sister so that they don't take me out. Now there's all kinds of problems with this plan. I mean, you and I can see this a mile away that, you know, they're going to observe your interaction. They're going to go, they must be married. Brother and sister do not act like that. At least, you know, in our culture, we would say that. Of course, I'm also then troubled by the fact that Abraham married his half-sister. I I went and looked at several commentaries on this to see, and there are several ways that biblical scholars have tried to explain this because there's no way that this godly man, Abraham, would commit incest. But he will lie through his teeth, (laughs) right? Right? And I just, I've been amazed. Last week, the Lord has brought several instances to my mind of how God uses humans who are frail and faulty and do things that are always a disappointment. And yet God uses these people. We talked about David last week being the man after God's own heart, but he, he, he committed adultery and he committed rape and he committed murder. But he's a man after God's own heart. And we go, how does that work? And so here's Abraham who is, in our eyes, committed incest. And now he's lying about it. And he's running scared. And it just doesn't go well. And there's one of the indictments in this story that I look at. And I find myself tempted to use the same kind of an indictment. When Abram is pushed, why did you do this stuff? Why did you have to make your own plan Abraham said, because this is a godless place. This isn't about the place. This is about Abraham's failure to believe that God is in this place. 
This isn't about the character of the people around Abraham. This is about Abram's failure to believe that God can be at work in the people around him. And I would just suggest to you, one of the things that bothers me intensely in our current culture in America and in the West, not just America, is that God isn't going to take care of people who do evil things, so we have to. And I would just suggest to you that, you know, God has not given up the cause of justice. He still visits those who are evil with punishment. I don't think that has changed. I still think there is a huge price to be paid for sin. I don't think that's changed. But here's Abraham who thought, I can't leave this to God. He's not here. That's actually what he's saying. This is a godless place. And what we find out is actually entirely contrary to that. Actually, God is at work and he is speaking directly to Abimelech. And Abimelech hears and recognizes and believes God's word. It's amazing. So here's the temptation that we face. The temptation is to look out for number one. I've got to take care of myself because no one else is going to do that. And we take that to the extent that I will look out for number one at the expense of everyone else around me. So if I benefit and everybody else suffers, so be it. I have to do this. And here's the issue with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is saying, I have to take care of myself. I have to make sure I live even if my wife gets abused and used and cast aside. You see... Abram has come to this point in his journey where he thinks making it is going to be up to me to figure out a way to do that. And he does this, I think, in several different ways in his life. And yet God stays with him and works with him. But here's this sense that he has that, you know what, if I draw attention to myself as the husband of this beautiful woman, I will die if I draw attention to myself in this foreign land where other people don't know my God, I'm toast. And before we're tempted to just throw rocks at Abraham and say, you idiot, how many times have we found ourselves in a position where we say, if I do the the right thing, if I do the godly thing, it's going to cost me and God will not take care of it. As with any good lie, there's an element of truth. Any good lie has an element of truth in order for it to be a believable lie. And the element of truth here is that standing out and doing what is right always costs us. Always. But the element that is untrue is that God will not take care. He will not honor us in that. So let's unpack that a little bit. You see... When we start to follow God, we would like to think, and sometimes we preach these sermons and we write this gospel, that when you come to God and you give him your life, it's all going to work out and it's going to be great. And for most of us, we will be quick to expound on the blessings that God brings. You know, now that I have God in my life, I'm a much better person and things do go well. They go much smoother than they did before. I'm a better husband, I'm a better employee, I'm a better friend, and I'm a better neighbor because I have Jesus in my life. I would argue that every Sunday out of the year and every day in between that. 
But I also recognize that when we honor God with our lives, our behavior starts to change and we don't act like those people around us. And as our behavior and our values differ from the world around us, we start to stick out and eventually the world becomes uncomfortable with the distinct difference between godly people and worldly humanity. It happens eventually. I've seen it happen, you've seen it happen, where people come to Jesus and their lives are changed and they're so happy and they're exuberant because I've got this newfound spiritual freedom. And then as that progresses over a bit of time, then they come to the place where they go, okay, now I really do have to live my life differently. I have to change my habits and that isn't going to go well at work or that isn't going to go well at home or that isn't going to go well at Thanksgiving dinner. And it's going to be really awkward and uncomfortable. And it might even be painful. Because this is the way we've always operated and functioned. And now God's showing us a better way. I would just suggest to you, different is always risky. It's always risky. But it's not always bad. And when different is God's way, it's always good. And it's always better. Years ago, I was probably an infant. I don't remember the people, but I remember the story. My parents on the mission field were faced with the issue in the culture around them of polygamy. It was very common for a husband who had enough money to not only marry one wife. If you've got enough money, you take a second wife and maybe a third, and that showed off your wealth. And so polygamy was going on. The missionaries were troubled by this, partly because it didn't fit with our Western culture, and partly because we saw this as an abuse to the women involved. It is not fair to the women involved. And so eventually this showed up in the church and we had converts that were now part of the church and they were coming and they, and they were preaching the practice of a man being a husband of one wife and, and, you know, and conversely a wife being a wife of one husband. But eventually someone came to the Lord and committed their life to Christ and oh, by the way, I've got two more wives you haven't met yet. And so this caused some disturbance in our little missionary community and the missionaries were a little divided about how we deal with this. And so does God tell him to divorce two and three? And if he does, what does that do to wife number two and wife number three? Now they're destitute and are they going to be reduced to things and means that are not godly? And it became a huge issue in the church, and we had to talk that through. Unfortunately, I was a little kid by the time this was settled. But what they agreed on was that you will be a husband of one wife, but you will not give up the care of these other women. So economically, you're going to take care of them, but you're not going to live with them. You will be parent to the children you've had with them, but you're not going to be sleeping with their mom. It was tough. But you know, after one generation, that really was purged in the church. 
And the benefit of monogamous marriage was seen and was pretty well adhered to. But the indictment that came back on us, if you think that, oh wow, we wise Western missionaries educated them on some sociological things. Years later, I was in high school and we were sitting with some of our African friends and somehow this issue came up and one of our African pastors laughed and he pointed back and he goes, but you Americans do exactly the same thing, you just don't do them all at the same time. And we didn't laugh. He was right. You see, our behavior and our values should be different because we hear from God and other people careen through life without even knowing that he exists. Abraham, of all people, should have exhibited different behavior because he had heard from God and he had left his home country and he had gone listening to God. You see, when we rely on God, eventually we deviate from conventional patterns of operation. We just don't do it the way others do. And in fact, our need to plan and calculate and predict eventually leaves no room in our lives for God to surprise and bless. If we are going to go, I've got it all together. I've got a plan and it's got to go like this. Last week we talked about control and the temptation to be in control. If we do that, God will go, okay, you got it. Not only do you not need me, you will not hear from me. I I think he responds to us that way. And so we need to be humble enough to go, God, I don't have all of this. And there are things that are outside of our control. And I would just suggest to you as Christians, if we're not operating in a way that we turn to God from time to time and go, you're in this, right? Because this this is big. If we don't do that, we leave no place for God to surprise us and go, hey, 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 I'm here, and I'm going to do this. Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite writers. He says, we like to occupy, to fill up every empty time and space. We want to be occupied, and if we are not occupied, we easily become preoccupied. That is, we fill the empty spaces before we have even reached them. It is very hard to allow emptiness to exist in our lives. Emptiness requires a willingness not to be in control, a willingness to let something new and unexpected happen. It requires trust, surrender, and openness to guidance. God wants to dwell in our emptiness. I read that this week and then I just found myself going back to it several times. So let me talk about the temptation to fit in or fill in, maybe. You see, we have this need to appear ordinary. We want to appear just like everyone else. And even at times we want to appear like others who don't appear like everyone else. And you can think about that this afternoon. But... We want to just be like everyone else because those who stand out get singled out. But if we are different, and part of the difference is we allow space in our life for God and we we build different margins to allow that in our lives, then part of our threat to the world around us is the threat of divine intervention. Let me explain that real quick. That means if I have empty spaces in my life that I welcome God to fill and use and he does show up, people will see that as God showing up and they'll go, I don't know how 
comfortable I am with God doing these kinds of things. This is not the way it's supposed to work. We carry the threat of divine intervention. So here's Abraham who goes down to Gerar and he's left the Negev desert desert, and he's gone to this place of this king Abimelech, which by the way, if you do a search, Abimelech is more of a title than a name. So there are several Abimelechs in the Bible. But he goes to this guy and this guy says, hey, welcome and uh, her, you know, come on, we'll make an alliance. But in this emptiness, <laughs> God shows up in a dream and goes, yo, Abimelech, you're going to die, man. You are toast. You touch her and I will kill you. I would suggest to you that God is just as interested in every one of your lives as he was in Sarah's. I don't think God had more invested in Sarah than any one of you. And in fact, I think there are people who might threaten you or I who will hear from Almighty in some way. You threaten my chosen, you threaten my children, you deal with me. What father has not said that at some point in time? Our Heavenly Father speaks that over you. He speaks that over you. And if we find ourselves in a risky position because we have honored and followed God, we can count on the fact that He is our arm of protection. I don't always understand how that works. I am not advocating for being irresponsible. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I would suggest to you when we do what God calls us to, God is there going, do not mess with my children. That's why when I said to Vanessa, I don't know that we should do family promise, and she said, God told me to. At that moment, I was like, okay, if God told you to do that, I'm going to trust you because I don't like to pick a fight with him. <laughs> Vanessa, I can handle. God, I cannot. Good luck with that. And I mean, yeah, I'm even uncertain of that one. You're right. There you go. But here's the thing. God might do something extraordinary when we show up because we follow him and we go beyond the bounds of what is possible in our own lives. And so there is always the threat that God will come alongside and say, my children have entered the building, beware. I would, I would love for each of you to live with the mentality that when you leave here and you go out into your work week, you go back to school, you go back to your places of work, you go back to the neighborhoods where you live, have the understanding that the holiness of God burns in your life and wherever you go, God is just kind of opening the way saying, this is my child and I use them and they serve me. Look out. If that's true, then we become outstanding people. You know, we stick out. That, that means we're not necessarily irresponsible or rash. We don't just go, hey, I'm going to run and play in the street because I'm a child of God. No, we, we still do things that are measured and thoughtful. But when we hear the voice of God, we follow. Not irresponsible or rash, but faith-filled and peaceable peaceable we don't go out there going god is on my side so i can smack anybody i want and god will take care of it no we go out there saying i want to be the child of god and that means where i go he protects so that he can 
bring his peace. He can bring his peace. In fact, I, I think we should be people whose lives are defined by the fact that our lives are frequented by divine providence. Providence. That frequently God shows up in our lives and does something amazing. That means that I have to be willing to live on that edge when God says, come on, move your toes and take the step. And I'm amazed at how God always moves that edge. Just when you think, okay, I've got it. I figured it out. I'm, I'm okay living this way, Lord. Then he kind of moves the goalposts again, doesn't he? Now we're going to do something new. This is my quote. God shows up not because we've been reckless, but because we have welcomed him and made space for his intervening grace and mercy. That's why God shows up. You know, recently we walked through this little duplex that our daughter, Linnea, and Amanda rented. And, and that day, boxes still strewn around. The first day they were in the building and, and furniture upended because we hadn't put it where it belongs. We walked through and we prayed through the house. We did a little blessing and I read this thing. And, and part of the reading was, Lord, bring strangers to this house that you want to have meet you. Isn't that cool? You see, when we welcome God, it, it creates space to do other things that require his mercy and grace, and that shows beauty, doesn't it? That's a beautiful thing. You see, we failed at times because we tried to do them our way, and God has another plan. I wish I had more time because there's a story that has to do with Robert E. Lee that's just incredible. And some of you probably know it. If you don't, look up the history of Arlington Cemetery in, in Washington, D.C., just on the Virginia side. It has to do with Robert E. Lee's family. But Robert E. Lee said this, and I believe, I tried to find it, but I believe this quote ha- uh, took place at the Appomattox Courthouse when he surrendered to Grant in the Civil War. He said, we failed. <laughs> but in the good providence of God, apparent failure often proves a blessing. And I close with this because I really like John R.W. Stott too. He says, faith is a reasoning trust. So don't put your brain on park. Faith is a reasoning trust, a trust which reckons thoughtfully and confidently on the trustworthiness of God. So we don't know. How is this going to work? What is it going to look like come next year when the kids are out of the house or when they're in high school? What's it going to look like when we're now married and we're no longer living with mom or dad? And We don't know, but here's what I believe. Faith is resting thoughtfully and confidently on the trustworthiness of God to be there. 